again, everybody. I'm Carly Webb, and this is the Transporter Room, the intersection of sport, science fiction, gaming culture, geek culture, fantasy, and other stuff. And we're still a part of the Outsports Olympic Rainbow Connection as we go to press on this edition, Team LGBTQ still on a roll. 20 medals so far puts us in 10th place in the medal count. That means Team LGBTQ is ahead of Korea, New Zealand, Brazil, and Canada. Taking a look at the gold medal count, seven gold medals from 10 athletes, and all those countries I just named have someone on this list somewhere. First, congratulations to New Zealand Rugby. They won the Women's Sevens competition as the Black Fern Sevens defeated France in the gold medal game 26-12. Broughton scored the winner in the semi-final. Gail Broughton around the outside. Ula Taylor with the tackle. Broughton dives in and she gets there. Gail Broughton, one of the out members of the team, putting up the try there. Kelly Brazier, congratulations. Portia Woodman, congratulations. And Ruby Tui, congratulations. And, and let's give a little bit of assist to rugby commentator and friend of the podcast, Alice Soper. During the COVID sports shutdown over the last year, she was inter instrumental in using her voice to make sure that the Black Ferns program had the funding and the support they needed from New Zealand rugby that led to this gold medal and will help aid in the preps and organizations for next year's Women's Rugby World Cup to be held in New Zealand. Also, Amadine Bouchard, congratulations. The French judoka had a silver in individual competition earlier in these games. She also has a goal to take back to Paris as well. She was a part of France's mixed judo team that won the team competition. And Sunday morning, there was a big, and I mean big story, Yulimar Rojas, Venezuelan triple jumper. She's won everything there is to be won. Pan Am Games, regional championships, world indoor titles, world outdoor titles. She's won everything except Olympic gold. In Rio five years ago, she had a silver. On Sunday, that changed. Here we go. 15.41, she's already broken the Olympic record. Can she get those long legs stretched out to more than 15.50? Saltos válidos y el salto larguísimo. Yulimar Rojas va a batir el récord del mundo. Gold and the world record for the 25-year-old. She is the first woman to break the 51-foot barrier in the triple jump. And on Tuesday night, big ups to Brazil's Ana Marcela Cunha. She swam in the 10-kilometer marathon open water swim. I'm getting tired just thinking about that. And it came down to a three-way battle down the stretch with Sharon von Roendahl of the Netherlands, who won this event in Rio in 2016, and Corinna Lee of Australia. And it was one serious finish. But don't take my word for it. Here's how Global Television in Brazil called it. A Marcela vai dominando, comandando, passadas firmes e rápidas. Uma atleta que é da maior qualidade vai bater quando bater ouro quando bater ouro vai chegando para bater medalha de 
Ana Marcela, congratulations. Now among the silver medalists, big ups to American shot putter Raven Saunders. And not just for the cool mask, the cool hair, the cool demeanor, but for 19.79 meters to get the silver medal in the shot put. And also sending the message that needed to be sent on the victory stand and sending a shout out to all those out there who, who may have been struggling the way she's had to struggle to get to this moment. Let's listen in. I, I came in here, one goal in mind, to get a medal. Making sure that I got a medal because it doesn't represent just me, it represents everybody that's struggling out here in the world, not just America, but in the world. I feel amazing, I feel amazing, because I know I'm about to inspire so many people. I'm about to inspire so many young girls, so many young boys, so many LGBTQ people, so many people that have battled suicide, so many people that have almost given up and shoot hopefully the family of those that, that actually have lost somebody, man. It's not, it's not just about me. It's not just about me. Along with the congratulations, we at Outsports want to send out condolences to Raven Saunders. Just a couple days after one of the greatest moments in her life, she was hit with one of the saddest. Saunders' mother, Clarissa, died of causes unknown, according to WBCD-TV in Orlando, where a number of families, including Saunders, met as part of an official USOC cheering section at Universal Orlando Resort. Raven, congratulations on the medal, and we're all with you. We're going to send good thoughts and our prayers out to you in this time. And as you're going through this healing, know that when you come back into the world, you have an open invitation to come here to the transporter room. Also, much love to silver medalist Katarina Zilman of Poland in rowing and bronze medal archer Lucilla Borari of Italy. Both of them have something special in common. They use the medal ceremonies and the interviews afterwards as their respective coming out moments. We now turn the page to Monday and the first transgender athletes to perform in an Olympic Games ever were in contest with medal hopes in the balance. In women's soccer, Canada against the United States, Quinn, midfielder for Canada, the first trans non-binary athlete to step onto the Olympic stage played 60 strong minutes of defense again, helped stymie the potent U.S. attack, and helped pace Canada to a 1-0 victory over the United States, the first victory against the U.S. national team by Canada in 20 years. They meet Sweden for the gold medal match on Friday, and for Quinn, no matter what happens, it's history. They will be the first trans non-binary Olympic medalist ever. Two hours after that game, women's weightlifting 87 plus kg class, the heavyweights. Finally, after all the brick bats and the clickbait, it was Laurel Hubbard's time to compete. The New Zealand weightlifter is the first transgender woman to compete in an Olympic Games, and it was a rough outing. She failed to complete a successful lift, although her second attempt could be disputed. Team New Zealand decided not to challenge the ruling, but the important thing is she got there. And afterwards, she thanked her national committee, 
thank the IOC for the opportunity, thank the people of New Zealand for the support. And I believe it's going to lead to more trans athletes coming in the future. About her own efforts, Hubbard said, quote, I am looking forward to my career as a pub quiz question on a card. That might sound slightly facetious, but there's a kernel of truth in it. I have never been involved in sports because I'm interested in publicity or profile. So if it means I now begin to descend into graceful obscurity, then I'm okay with that. Laurel, to trans people like me and athletes like me, you'll never just be able to fade into oblivion or obscurity. Your name will always be spoken with honor. You showed a lot of courage in this time. Thank you for sharing it with us. And turning to Tuesday, women's 200-meter final on the track and a follow-up on a story we told you about here in the Transporter Room a few weeks ago. The story of Namibian sprinters Christine Mabuma and Beatrice Masalingi. Both were slated to be in the 400 meters in Tokyo. And they both would have been some serious medal contenders, but both were disqualified from running the event due to, guess what, the castor Semenya rule regarding testosterone limits. However, those rules do not apply to the 200-meter event, where both got through to the final, and in the final, Mabuma introduced herself to the world. On a late charge, she moved from fourth place down the stretch to finish second behind dominant Elaine thompson Hurrah of Jamaica. For Mabuma, she becomes the first Namibian woman to win an Olympic medal in the history of her country. She's also the first Namibian to win an Olympic medal since star sprinter Frankie Fredericks won silver at 100 and 200 meters at Atlanta in 1996. But this also begs the question for World Athletics and the IOC. Why does this rule, which has been used predominantly against women of color from nations of the global south, still exist? You had four athletes who've been on the wrong side of this poorly considered regulation compete in Tokyo. There was Indian sprinter Duti Chand, who fought the first generation of this regulation and won her day in court. She ran at 100 and 200 meters in Tokyo. Francine Nian-Saba on the podium in the 800 meters at Rio five years ago, came back to race in the 5,000 meters. She won her preliminary heat, thought she had won a space in the finals, only to be told she was disqualified for a lane violation. Now, I've watched that race three times. If there was a lane violation, the camera's not showing it. And there is Mabuma and Masalingi at 18 years old in the biggest stage of their life. And there's also thoughts for another athlete who should have been here but wasn't. South African champion Castor Semenya. Imagine what the 800-meter final could have looked like. Ating Mo of the United States, 19 years old. The future of that event. Ran a 155 at 19 years old. Still learning the ropes at the elite level. And she's within two seconds of one of the longest standing world records ever. The 38-year-old mark 
of Jarmila Kraktovilova, Czechoslovakia. What if Castor Semenya and Ating Mo would have been going toe-to-toe in that 800 final? Oh, what a race that could have been. A memo to the IOC and World Athletics. IOC President Thomas Bach, World Athletics Chairman Lord Sebastian Coe, if you truly believe in fairness for every athlete and truly believe in the principles of Olympism, especially the fourth principle, the practice of sport is a human right, tear down this rule. It's archaic. It's racist. It's unnecessary. It's discriminatory. Please tear down this rule. Now, away from the Olympics, a major sporting moment will be delayed for at least one month. Last week, we had Alana McLaughlin on the transporter room, an aspiring MMA fighter set to be the first trans competitor since the legendary Fallen Fox hung up the gloves in 2014. She was slated to be on the Combate Global card this week. But according to Combate Global Senior VP for Operations and Communications, Micah Framowitz, the opponent for the fight, Celine Provost of France, tested positive for COVID-19 and is currently in quarantine through August 6th. Framowitz told me earlier this week that Provost is feeling fine, but will be in quarantine, has no symptoms. He said that if there is a negative test next week, We plan to move ahead with the fight with a tentative scheduled date of September 10th. Now, currently, McLaughlin is training in a bubble in South Florida, a bubble that Provost would also join in early September as the projected fight date approaches. Now, you're hearing that noise, and you know what it means. Got to take a break, give some love to our sponsors. But when we return to the transporter room, our guest this week will give us a deeper medical perspective behind the rules and regulations and we'll take a look inside the anti-trans legislation sweeping this country as well. Dr. Nick Gordon will join us next. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb. This is the Transporter Room. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Transporter Room. I'm Carly Chardonnay-Webb, and this Olympic Games have certainly been the queerest, gayest, most trans-tastic ever. Over 180 out and proud athletes, and we have some medal winners in that group. One of those medal winners will be trans. Quinn, midfielder for Canada's women's soccer team and friend of the podcast, will be in a gold medal match against Sweden coming up Friday. No matter what happens in this match, they'll have a medal around their neck. The first trans non-binary Olympic medalist in history. And this was also a week where the first transgender athlete competed in an individual event with Laurel Hubbard of New Zealand in weightlifting. Now the IOC is saying that after these games, They're going to take a new, fresh look at the regulations. They said that the current regs are 
out of date and, quote, not fit for purpose. Now, late last week, the IOC convened a roundtable of experts in Tokyo to discuss the issues. And in a revealing press conference after the meeting, the IOC's medical and scientific director, Dr. Richard Budget, had this to say. There are no guidelines, but there's the scientific consensus and they were working on a framework to help IFs with that difficult decision of how to um, ensure inclusivity while ensuring also fairness. And as you all know, there is a, a lot of disagreement across the whole world of sport and beyond on this issue of eligibility. Everyone agrees transgender women are women, but it's a matter of eligibility for sport um, and particular events. And it really has to be very sport specific. Um, so it is up to each sport, in each discipline even, um, as to exactly what the, uh, the, the rules for participation uh, and eligibility are. Um, so it, it is complex. And one of the reasons that the, uh, there have been no framework published yet is not just because of the difficulty in coming to any consensus. And there's been a, a huge consultation exercise going on with all those bodies and individuals and representatives who are involved in this, it's because it would have been inappropriate to come out with uh, a new um, framework or guidelines just before the Olympic Games. And of course, that was going to be a year ago and now it's now. So there will be a new framework uh, to help IFs. We're working very closely with them, um, but it's not published yet. Sounds like the IOC has some big changes coming, but what will they mean? What could they look like? How will it affect elite world sport? And what could the effect of what we've seen in Tokyo be on the greater effort towards trans rights around the globe? Well, we brought in somebody who's pondered these questions. Dr. Nick Gorton is a trans man and a physician, primary care provider for Lion Martin's Health Services in San Francisco. He's also served as a medical legal consultant for trans health care for organizations such as Lambda Legal, the Transgender Law Center, the National Center for Lesbian Rights Sports Project, the, and the Sylvia Rivera Law Project. He was also a consultant to the NCAA when they put their trans student-athlete policies in place in 2011. And they're joining us on our forum now. We're setting coordinates for the Bay Area to beam him up. Energize. Dr. Gordon, welcome to the Transporter Room. How do you think Laurel Hubbard's run to the Olympics will affect future discussions in regards to the regulations? Because that is now back on the table, apparently. Yeah, I, I think that it's, it's always been the case that... Uh, People have questioned the IOC's decision to allow trans athletes to participate, and anytime they change that, it's uh, it's sort of kicking the proverbial beehive. And so, it, the thing is, though, to be completely honest, I think the IOC actually, right now for trans people, has a pretty good policy. I think their policy for uh, non-trans women who have naturally higher testosterone levels um, is, uh, is a hot mess. But I actually think the way that they uh, treat trans athletes is 
probably right. I don't think there's too much to change with what they're doing. Um, now that will, of course, uh, there are going to be people on either side of the, of the uh, coin who are going to say, oh, what are you nuts? Of course we have to change it. It's this, this, and this. But I, I, I genuinely think the IOC tried to do the right thing and they got to a good place with it, at least regarding trans athletes. Like I said, it's, it's still a kind of a circus with non-trans women who have elevated testosterone levels. That situation came to a head this week because two people who fell under what we, what we know as the Castor Semenya rule, but in another event that doesn't go under that rule, they're both in the final. They're both in the finals of two hundred meters anyway. What about that rule? Is not what's the hot mess here in your mind? There's this. There's this idea in sports that testosterone is this big, huge elephant in the room, right? Now, it absolutely is the case that there are differences uh, between male and female performance in sports, though those differences can actually be quite small in some events, right? And so the advantage testosterone gives you is it's one of the advantages that you could have in performance, right? So the, the deal is historically, that was the one we kind of figured out first. And uh, we were, you know, when the Olympics finally allowed women to participate, it was in a separate group because women didn't perform as well. And then the question of, of testosterone use came very quickly afterwards because that's sort of the most obvious way that we think of that uh, people who are assigned male at birth and people who are assigned female at birth are different, right? And, and that is the difference. And so because that was sort of first, it's always remained this big, huge elephant in the room. And it distracts people from the fact that there's like seven other elephants just as big as that, that are in the room too. And all of that comes together to honestly make sports and especially make elite sports not fair, right? Elite sports are not fair for many reasons. For example, you know, one that comes to mind is Michael Phelps, right? He's six foot four. And in fact, actually, if you look in both women's Olympic swimming and in men's Olympic swimming, the average finalist, like the person who gets to compete in the, the medal race, right. is about five inches taller than the average size uh, person, right? And the reason is it's just physics, right? The drag that the water exerts on your body is higher the shorter you are, right? So a shorter swimmer has to actually swim better than a taller swimmer to essentially get the same time, right? So being high, definite advantage. Also, large hands and large feet. Michael Phelps wears a size 14 shoe, right? He's got the body that's sort of perfect for this. And there are some aspects of his body that are totally things that he did. He worked really hard. Everybody who gets the Olympics worked really hard, right? He worked hard. He developed these things. This guy works like a, a demon to do this. So you have to have that. You have to have that drive. You have to put the time in. But if Michael Phelps was five foot eight, he wouldn't have meddled. That's just, it's just, and it's physics that does it. And there are genes that influence height that can make you taller or shorter. 
And that's actually a good example of why testosterone isn't actually the biggest deal, right? So if you look, on average, women are about three inches shorter than men, right? So if you have two athletes, uh, two male athletes, uh, male swimmers, and one is three inches shorter than the other one is, the three-inch taller one's going to have an advantage, right? And so that's one of the differences between men and women in swimming. But this is the deal. There's a bigger spread of how tall women and how tall men are then that difference and that bigger spread is bigger than the testosterone effect, right? So if you look, average swimming finalists about five inches taller, right? But the average difference the testosterone gives you is three inches, right? The, the height, all those genes that govern height are a bigger effect than testosterone is, right? Um, as far as height, and height is a big advantage for swimmers. And so... We look at that big elephant because we kind of always have, but there's other things too, you know, height, body shape, body size. It, there, there are genes that have been identified that are common in power athletes that are more common in uh, uh, distance athletes, in sprinting athletes, right? And if you don't have, in some of these sports, if you don't have that gene, you're not going to be in the top 10. And so... There, there's a lot of unfairness in sports. If you look at since the IOC uh, allowed trans people to participate in the Olympics up until not including this year, I honestly just haven't done the, the numbers this year. But 2004 to 2016, there were just shy of 5,000 medals that the IOC awarded, including bronze, silver, and gold, right? Um, there's been, there had been about 19,000 since, since the Olympics started, right? And so if you take a very low ball number for trans people in the population, it's probably about one in 200, but let's say it's one in a thousand people are trans. If one in a thousand people are trans and everything else was equal and every, there was no uh, other things that affected it, then since, two, since the IOC instituted that change, we should have won about five medals. So there's something that is keeping trans people out of this. And what I would say is it's all the, the psychosocial issues that trans people have to deal with in adolescence when at a time when other kids are who are have the talent and put in the effort and have the advantages to be able to become world-class athletes, when they're doing that, trans kids have so many other issues, they functionally can't. That in itself is a disadvantage, and I think that's one of the reasons we don't see a whole lot of world-class athletes that are trans. Now, Doc, you know you're bringing it. You're bringing in some things that people don't. You talk about the elephants in the room. You brought up a major elephant in the room, and that male, and that elephant in the room is the dichotomy: global north versus global south. I mean, look at the top. The top ten in the middle count are all nations in the global north. Yeah, every last one Absolutely. of them. Absolutely. Given what we just talked about. Why is trans all of a sudden this sticking point issue? How did this get to the front of the table? Part of it is a, is a historical thing, like I mentioned, that um, this was something we could figure out. We couldn't figure out all those genetic polymorphisms that uh, make you a better endurance athlete or power athlete or sprinting athlete. We didn't know it, Right. So it's sort of a historical thing, part of it. But the other issue, too, is 
that there's a lot of transphobia in the world. And so whenever trans people do well, they're, you know, they have a target painted on their back. Right. And so there's, you know, that the, the disturbing thing, honestly, to me in sports related to trans people is not the Olympics. I mean, I think the Olympics is a great showcase uh, for what trans people could do when we are given the chance. Um, yes, we are not winning as many man, as many medals and sending as many people to the Olympics as we should be based on our percentage of the population, but it doesn't mean that we can't, right? So I think the Olympics is important. I think the IOC is doing a good job with trans athletes, honestly. But I think the thing that's really disturbing is actually uh, high school and earlier athletics because it, it's this sort of paradoxical thing that the you know the olympics but also like the ncaa they have and and some you know other sports leagues my experience is mostly in the u.s so other u.s sports leagues have actually reasonable rules about this right if you look though the most unreasonable rules about athletic participation uh are actually coming in from uh a lot of red states who are passing laws that don't let trans children participate right and and this is the deal the the goal in the olympics is well there's two goals sportsmanship doing the right thing and also winning right and winning's a huge thing winning is the reason that every athlete goes to the olympics you know some of them are they know i'm just happy to be here i'm probably not going to win a medal but that's on everybody's mind right everybody wants to win the, the olympic gold and, and I get that. And that's highly competitive. And in those areas, a fraction of a second is often the difference between the gold medalist and the person who got 12th place, right? In, in high school and earlier athletics, first off, the goal is not winning, right? The goal is participation. It's getting kids out there to build healthy habits for a lifetime to, uh, you know, to help them develop psychosocially, to help them learn what fair play is and how, how to be a good loser and how to be a good winner, right? And so that's the thing that we're depriving this group of children who are already sort of behind the eight ball from a psychosocial perspective. These kids have to deal with so much nonsense, even if they have supportive parents, even if they are you know accepted in in some areas of their lives if they're told i'm sorry you, you're you're not right you can't compete in athletics you can't be a you know a high school baseball player that that's so damaging to these kids it's all about transphobia it's all about hate but the people at the top end of the spectrum are like yeah we're not buying the transphobia and the hate we're just going to do what's right at the lower end of the spectrum there's not so much, there's not as many people who are able to speak to the science and the, the logic behind this. Um, it's like, I, I once wrote a letter for, actually for a friend of mine's kid, who was, I think, eight at the time, and who was trans, and who was being excluded from playing soccer. Eight-year-old kids, whether they're assigned male or female at birth, there's no advantage at eight. 
there's none. Just let the kids play, right? But that's the thing that, that you know, that's the transphobia. It's just writ more large in places where there are less people working against it. The parents going to come to you and say, and I've, I've seen this on Twitter when you've had the Twitter discourse with people. So you want, you want these, quote unquote, let's just put the word out there, biological males to take my daughter's scholarship away. How do you um, how do you answer that? <laughs> well, the first thing I say is the sky has not fallen despite the fact that for over a decade the NCAA has a pretty reasonable uh, uh, policy for allowing trans student athletes to compete, right? So they've been doing this for a little over I think it was 2010. Um, in that time there has been one transgender national champion, C.C. Telfer, um, in 2019, I believe. Yep. She won first place in Division Two, so not the top division for the NCAA, but in Division Two, she won first place in the 400-meter hurdle, 400 hurdles. Now, that wasn't her only event, so you got to realize she lost to cisgender college athletes in other events, right? If testosterone, uh, prior exposure to testosterone is such a huge benefit, then why did she lose in other events? You know, so, it, and, and realize the NCAA fields every year a little less than half a million athletes, right? Half a million athletes for 10 years, and there is one trans national champion in Division II. Your kid's scholarship is safe, right? And, and the thing is, it's not, I'm not saying trans people are less capable of doing sports, they're not. But trans people often aren't medalists because the psychosocial issues that they have to face are so tremendous that they're nearly insurmountable. They're not allowed to participate or they've got so much other stuff going on that they don't have the, the, the mental and the physical energy to put into this to become champions. You are part of these discussions at the ground level. Way back in 2010 when the NCAA was building their, was, was building their policy. You, were, you had a piece of this. Were these things I was, discussed then? Yeah, no, absolutely. I was I was actually sort of a, a subject matter expert that they used, um, partly because I did it for free, I'm guessing. Um, <laughs> so, um, but I was just, a, you know, and they had questions, and I sat down and answered those questions as best I could. And so, I mean, I wasn't the one who decided on these rules. I just told them, look, this is this is what's going on. These are the advantages. This is what happens when you... Uh, hormonally transition for this amount of time. Uh, you know, these are how, you know these are ways that those things can be monitored. This is typically what uh, young you know trans people, trans youth do as far as treatments. And so, and, and I just gave them the data, the scientific data, and they uh, they're way more expert than me in fairness in sports because, like I said, I'm not an athlete. Um, 
you know, the, the, so, but I gave them the trans information and the science so that they could make a decision using their expertise too, right? They have the, the biggest expertise about fairness in sports and uh, testing and doping and that kind of stuff. I just added the trans part for them. Now, what got you involved in this issue in the first place? What led you here? The, honestly, the Bay Area Derby Girls um, in, I guess, like 2005 or six or seven, Helen Carroll, who uh, is the sports director for the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Right. Um, Helen Carroll, friend of the podcast. Yep. Friend yep, of the podcast. Ama amazing lady to work with. Um, so anyway, she, I, she like kind of cold called me and said, Hey, would you be willing to come to talk to the Bay area Derby girls because they want to allow trans athletes to participate. And so they have questions about how they can best do this. Right. And I was like, okay, sounds like a fun Friday night. So, so we go over to the, this kind of warehouse area in Oakland, um, that is like a, one of the warehouses have been converted into like a skate area. Um, we go in there and they're having practice. Afterwards, Helen and I go in the locker room with them and talk about this and answer their questions. And they were amazing. And that's the thing you got to realize there are a lot of transphobic people out there who are like, this isn't fair. This is unreasonable. Most athletes I have ever talked to about this, most cisgender athletes I have ever talked to about this are totally okay with it. They just want to know, hey, what is the difference? What is reasonable? What is fair? What is what what information do I need to make sure that these people can participate um, and and still make it fair for everybody and still make it safe for everybody, right? And so I think most athletes are fine with this. It is the transphobes who sort of exert their influence elsewhere. You know, there's not, you know, the, the, there's a, a few people or a few athletes who have been uh, interviewed who were unhappy about uh, Laurel Hubbard's uh, participation in the Olympics. And and I get that you're there, you've gone to the Olympics. This is, this is the, the peak for you. I get feeling that, wow, this thing might take my, or this, you know, this, the IOC allowing trans women to participate might take this away from me. I don't think that's accurate, but I can understand that feeling. And so, yeah, if you get somebody in that situation, they are a little bit more likely still I don't think all people would. I, most of the athletes that I know are interested in fair play. And if they have the information to realize that you can include trans athletes and still have fair play, they're all about it, right? So Helen and I go to talk to this derby girl uh, or the derby lady, and um, they did, like, amazing. I think they were the, the first organized sports league, like that local league, that basically proactively said, yes, we allow trans people to participate. And they had, a, they just had an amazing, uh, uh, you know, sort of regulation that they came up with. And then actually 
very fairly soon afterwards, the National Roller Derby League, I don't know the name of it offhand, um, adopted similar rules. And their rules are amazing. I've read them before. Uh, you're they talking about just, the World Flag Track Derby Association and what they've, there you what go. they've laid down, yes. Yes, the World Flat Track Derby Association. And their rules are amazing, you know. And, and their rules are scientifically valid and really put fair play at the forefront, you know. And most athletes want to do that. They just, they, they want to participate. They don't want to win by cheating. They don't want, you know, other people not to have a fair chance to compete too. When you worked with um, Roller Derby in 2005, consulted with the NCAA, by the way, just want to give a little shout out to Erica Vanstone, commissioner of World Flag Track Derby Association, another friend of the, another friend of the podcast. And She's talked about a number of those changes that have been made in Derby at length, and the terrorists have attacked Derby. I don't know why. Most of the most affirming, most open, inclusive sport probably in the world, and you're attacking them. Um, how have the myths changed between two thousand? Between, for example, what you heard when you went to that meeting in two thousand five, and some of the things you hear in some of these committee hearings in all these different states from people like the Barbara Earhards and the Bestalzers of the world now? To be honest, it, it uh, like if you're talking to the Derby League or the NCAA, they're not honestly listening to people like that. And so... Yeah, there are some myths. You know, the one myth that testosterone is the single most important thing that changes athletic performance and allows an advantage that wins you a medal, right? That's the biggest myth, right? Testosterone does do that. That is not even close to all of, of what does that, right? Which is why, you know, we just talked about it. I didn't read anything about it yet because I was actually doing some work for my clinic, but... Um, you know, why Laurel Hubbard didn't perform really well. You know, she didn't, she's not going to win the medal. And that's okay, because guess what? She, you know, it, it's it's not fair. Everybody tries. She tried. She tried really hard. She had to withstand all these transphobic attacks. I mean, I can't even imagine what her social media uh, DMs were like during the show. She's time. not even on it. Um, That's one thing. She yeah, good, good for her. From all this, what, hasn't given an interview in four years. And I, I'll her. tell you, I don't think she even got an opportunity to to enjoy the Olympic experience. To even even yeah. the abbreviated version that we're going to have because of COVID and whatnot, but still, the Olympics is still an experience and. She got none. She got none of that piece of cake. That happens with anybody who's the first. That you you got a target. You know, like the the kids who integrated uh, Little Rock High School, Little Rock Nine. That gets better a little bit for people who participate after, but it's still that transphobia is still there. The difference is the the sort of myth difference is that the people who are, as, as more people, uh, as more trans athletes put themselves out there, as more kids transition in adolescence, 
um, you are seeing more trans athletes. And because of that, they've stuck their head out there. And like I said, Google Little Rock Nine and look at the faces of the white kids who are screaming at them. That's, that is like, you, that's the face of all the turfs that are out there. You know, it's not because they like, they like women as athletics. They don't care. They really don't care. They hate trans people. Um, and so whenever trans people are going to put their neck out there, they're going to get hammered for it, you know? Um, and that's one of, guess what? That's one of the reasons that numerically, I mean, you know, if it's one in a thousand, we should have won five medals. It's actually more like one in 200, which is we should have won 25 medals by population size. We should have won 25 medals. And part of the reason we haven't is because those screaming angry faces, you know, so the myths are no, you know, the, the myths that the people in sport do, it, it, it's just well-meaning, but uneducated. Turfs will, will, they'll use anything, anything that has any traction. You know, they'll show you pictures of men walking into the little girls' bathrooms. It's like, okay, first off, um, the, the law that lets trans women go to the bathroom does not let uh, cisgender male predators go to the bathroom, right? We already have a law that says you can't do that. How do you keep from pulling your hair out? How do you keep from just saying, this is too ignorant for me? What keeps you even educating, even through this, through the willful ignorance? Well, I, I will tell you one thing. Uh, doing that was actually really good practice for the pandemic, you know? <laughs> so oh. <laughs> um, having to talk to people who don't really know much science and sort of have unrealistic beliefs about things that are fed by the worst parts of social media and are underlined by racism, sexism, transphobia, uh, xenophobia. Yeah, I got I, it, it. Like I said, it, it really put me on my game so that when the pandemic happened, I wouldn't have as much of my soul sucked out of my eyeballs talking to people about this, right? But and, this and but the deal is, I will tell you, most people are well-meaning but don't know enough information, right? When I talk to the NCAA, when I talk to the Derby League, they had extremely good intentions. And they their biggest thing was they wanted this to be fair and they wanted people who uh, were able to participate to be able to participate, right? That's what that's what all of these things are about. You know, above high school, high school it's all transphobia in Texas and Florida and blah blah blah. Um, the but the deal is, most athletes want that. You know, it's not the athletes that are clamoring for this. It is people who are transphobic and see this as, oh, this is a wedge issue I can use. That's the reason we have so many anti-trans bills in state houses this year. It's not because the Republicans that are passing these bills really care about women high school athletes. If they did, they wouldn't do things like pass the law in Florida that says that if the other team you're playing thinks you're a little too mannish, 
you have to be subject to a genital exam to be able to participate in that sport, right? They don't care about high school women athletes. That is proof positive. This is not about that. This is about distracting from all the other horrible things that they are doing to everybody. What worries you the most about what we're seeing in the American landscape where you may have a country where trans people can go into this state and states we cannot go. I, I say this often. We may have a green book country here for trans people. What frightens you the most about this landscape, especially in the area as a doctor, where states are literally saying, we will not allow you to get affirming care. Never mind play sports in school. Yeah, so there's, um, it, honestly, the thing that worries me the most about the United States is social media. Um, because that's where this stuff grows and uh, mutates and becomes virulent, right? My, I transitioned in 2003 working at a medium-sized community hospital in the suburbs of New Orleans, right? So I thought, well, gee, I'm going to have to quit this job, take some time off, do some of my transition, and then try to find another job. And so I went to um, our uh, the chief... Uh, medical officer of the hospital. I went to the CEO and I went to my boss in the ED practice and I said, Hey, look, this is my timing. This is what I'm planning to do this. Cause we actually had some trouble getting uh, staffing with physicians at the time. It was, it was pretty uh, hard to get the ER docs. And so I didn't want to leave him in the lurch. And so I said, look, I'm just letting you know. And, I, and all three of them, I was like, they're, they're going to be cool about this. Um, but I just wanted to give them warning because I didn't want to, you know, like say, Hey, I'm leaving in a month. Good luck. Right. So I told him like six months in advance and all of them were like, well, why are you going to leave? <laughs> to which I responded, you are aware that we're in Louisiana. Right. <laughs> um, and, and so, but after talking to people, I came out to a few more people that I worked with and everybody was really accepting. And there were a few people who, I think weren't very accepting, but they also looked at it realistically and were like, okay, this person's a pretty good quality ER doc. And would I rather have the, uh, the, the unknown uh, non-freak uh, who might not take care of my patients well, or the known high quality freak who I trust to take care of my patients. And I think that won out, right? I think that was the reason that I didn't get much from the people who I think otherwise were not accepting. But most people were very accepting of it, right? And one of the things, and, and I asked one of the, the nurses that I worked with, I was like, I don't get how this happened, right? I mean, I know people like me and everything, but that only goes so far, right? Um, because not everybody that I worked with was progressive. There were some, you know, dyed in the blue Republican conservatives that I worked with. And I asked one of the nurses and he's like, you know what I think it is? When I go to church on Sunday, the pastor preaches about how homosexuals are evil. He ain't never mentioned trans people. And so, I, and, and this person wasn't somebody, it, it wasn't like he was saying that, 
well, because his pastor had never said trans people were bad, that's the only reason he was accepting of me. Um, but I think he was onto something because a couple other people that I, cause I was married at the time, a couple other people asked me, well, but, but if you transition, you're going to be gay. Like, like that was the, the, mm-hmm. the most dangerous and most, the thing that really got him was that then I was going to be gay. It wasn't that I was trans. Right. And so I think it's, it's one more people are more aware because trans people are more out there. Right. Um, we're represented in media more. And so you do that and that target gets painted on your back. But I think social media has siloed people to the point that, you know, really it has siloed a significant proportion of the population who live in this alternate reality and, and what things happen in there. Well, uh, COVID denialism, anti-maskers, anti-vaxxers, also racism, xenophobia, QAnon, also anti-trans, anti, so like all these things and, and I think what's happened is you, you've had people who've gotten kind of drawn into that because, you know, maybe they weren't so uh, homophobic or transphobic, um, but they got drawn in because of some other aspect and they got pulled into that silo. And everything that goes on in that silo is homophobic, transphobic, xenophobic, anti-immigrant, uh, you know, it, like all of these things are getting distilled down. And I think there's a good third of the population is really vulnerable to that. The saving graces that I think the other two thirds, even may they be conservative, they're looking Mm -hmm. at that one third going, oh my God, that's a bomb. That's going to explode. One thing that has come out this week is now the IOC seeing what's happened here, seeing the possibilities of what's happened here, Their medical and science director says the science has moved on. We have to as well. That leads to a very important question. The IOC is saying now we got to rethink the regulations. And there are other groups talking about it, like the Women's Sports Policy Working Group, or as I like to call them, the Cisgender Women's Sports Policy Working Group. Now, let's say they call you. They say, Dr. Dr. Gordon, we're with the International Olympic Committee. We'd like you to come to Lausanne, Switzerland, and and basically shoot from the hip. We're going to make you the policies are. What do you want to see? Um. Well, first off, I will take that offer. Uh, I'd love a trip to Switzerland. <laughs> um. The uh, the the second thing is that um, I think what the IOC has as far as their regulations now for trans athletes is good. I think the IOC needs to build messaging to explain why it's good, right? To explain to people, and you can explain to people in simple terms, like testosterone is one of a myriad of things that can influence performance in athletics. And we have done the thing that, uh, or we have created the rules that make it the most fair possible for trans athletes to compete there are so many different things that influence who's at the top of their game and it's not that you don't have to work hard every person in tokyo has worked so hard to get there right 
but there are other people who work just as hard and don't get there. And that's not fair. Um, there are people who work twice as hard as Michael Phelps who will never get there. But you know what? That's, that's life. Life's not fair, you know? And so, so improve their messaging about letting trans people participate. Also, just put some of those statistics out there, right? If you take what is most, most accepted now scientifically as far as, as uh, prevalence estimates for trans people, it's like one in 200. We should have won 25 games or 25 medals by 2016. 20, 20 to 25. There were none, right? Nobody even got to the Olympics, right? That's the stuff that they need to message. Then I would say, so I think you're doing good on the trans stuff. Really good job. I think you did good work in the past. I think you just need to, to, to do messaging about it, to let people understand what's going on. But I would love to talk to you about your policies about women athletes with elevated testosterone levels because that's an epic shit show. Um, what makes it the epic shit show? In your mind, it, what makes it that? Okay, first off, the whole thing we just talked about, that testosterone is part of, testosterone levels are part of the myriad of biological influences and psychosocial influences that decide who gets to be the, the gold medalist, right? That's part of it. That's not all of it. And so let's say, mm -hmm. for example, you have a, a, a cisgender woman athlete who's got polycystic ovarian syndrome, right? She's got PCOS, naturally higher testosterone levels. Now she's competing. Let's see, these are the top two athletes. She's competing against a woman who, uh, let's say in swimming, she's competing against a woman who uh, doesn't have elevated testosterone levels, but does have a five inch height advantage, but does have one of the genes that we know is much more common in, uh, in high end uh, uh, or top performing uh, sprinting athletes, right? And let's say this is a swimming sprint event, right? And so the woman with the normal testosterone levels may be biologically more advantaged, having nothing to do with how much work she did, having nothing to do with how much grit she had and how much she put of herself into this, than the shorter woman who doesn't have those other genetic advantages, who has an elevated testosterone level because PCOS. Why is it that we say the woman with PCOS, no, 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 you have to take birth control pills or you have to have surgery or whatever so that you, we get rid of the advantage you have. But this other swimmer, we don't say, well, because you're five inches taller, we're going to add, you know, 0.1 second to your time. And that would make it fair because guess what? That would make it fair with the shorter athlete. Let's just say it was just height and testosterone. And those were equal advantages. Why is it that you require the woman who has the high testosterone to lose her advantage, but the woman who is taller gets to keep her advantage? That makes no sense at all. None. Right? If you're like, we're going to make a biological, uh, you know, even playing field. One, you can't. That's impossible. Right? But if that's your goal, then you got to do a lot of other work 
about people with those genetic polymorphisms that make them better sprinters, that make them better power athletes, that make them better endurance athletes, you know, mutations in genes for uh, muscle fibers, mutations in genes for um, your, your carrying capacity for oxygen in your blood, right? If you're going to make it fair with regards to testosterone, you need to make it fair with regards to those other things, and they don't. And that's what's absurd about it. And talking about all the issues, the DSD, the DSD issue, trans athletes, inclusion of non-binary, is there light at the end of this tunnel? And is it actual daylight or is it an oncoming train? I think, I think ultimately there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's because most people aren't assholes, you know, I mean, that's, and that sounds like stupid, but you know, it's it, Martin Luther King was talking about this. He said the, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. That is, it will take a long time, but it's going to get better. You know, that doesn't say it gets perfect, right? But it gets better. If you look in the, you know, the long arc of history, it is going to get better, you know, and I, and I believe that's why I'm still doing this. If I didn't think it was going to get better, I would be uh, probably living in another country on a beach right now, having a daiquiri. Well, I can say we're glad you're still here pitching and fighting the good fight. Dr. Nick Gordon, thank you for joining us in the transporter room. It was great having you. This is something I've been wanting to do for a long time, especially with the advocacy you've done in the past and continue to do. So thank you for joining us. We're going to beam you back down to the West Coast down there, and we're going we're gonna to want you back. I'll tell you that right now. Sure, we're going to want you back. Thanks back, for having thank me. You. And also, uh, just to note, the, uh, to the IOC, I am ready for that invite to Switzerland. So just FYI. <laughs> Well, hey, we'll work on beaming you there. Thank you for being with us, Doc. Energizer is going to beam you back down. And thank you all for being on the Transporter Room this week. It was a big, big week for sports. It was a big week, especially for inclusion in sports, as it's been a big Olympics. And if there's something you want to see on the Transporter Room or something you want to say about what we do here, please leave a message on our Twitter. Leave a message on our Facebook page because I say it every week, but it rings true. Everything I do in the transporter room, I do for you, the people who support us. I'm Carly Chardonnay Webb. For all of us at the transporter room, live long and prosper. Steady as she goes. I'll see you next week.